0: this morning? Good, good. It is great to be in the house with you. Virtual insanity. Man, isn't that a great description of the world that we live in? Virtual insanity. I think just even a a casual glance at the headlines shows you that we live in a crazy world. From Syria to Korea, Hollywood to politics and all points in between, it is a crazy world that we live in. And yet I think that is a great opportunity for those of us who are, for who, who are people of faith, followers of Christ, to step into the breach. And you, I, I think it's important to understand that we're not just called to inhabit this world, but we have a calling from God to inhibit the crazy, to, to slow it down and to arrest the insanity. Wherever we find it in our sphere of influence that God has given us, We have this amazing opportunity to bring the truth of God, the reality of Scripture, to bear in a crazy, crazy world. I want to start this morning. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that we live in a little bit of a crazy world? Let me just see a show of hands. That's fascinating. Now, let me ask you another question. How many of us in the room right now, over the last seven days since we gathered together last, how many of you have dealt with crazy? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay, now, hold on, keep your hands up. If you've dealt with crazy, don't point any fingers, just raise your hand. But if you've dealt with crazy over the last seven days, look around the room. Look how many hands are up. This is part of God's creative genius and his amazing grace in that he gives us each other. Because a lot of times when you're in the crazy vortex, you can feel like you are all alone. you feel like, nobody's dealing, look, so many others are dealing with crazy crazy just like you, and believe me when I tell you that crazy is as crazy does. And so it's around us everywhere we go, but this is our opportunity. And this has really been, I think, the ultimate aim of this series that we've been in over the last few weeks, virtual reality. Not, I'm not talking about some kind of computerized, goggle-induced vision, but what we're really talking about is a divinely delivered definitively documented description of what's true of what's real what's genuine and authentic as orchestrated as created by the author of reality himself God Almighty and not only for us to be able to identify what's real or what's actually ultimately true but also to be able to to put it into practice in this life, for us to, to put shoe leather underneath what we say we believe. Because I think for all of us who have been in, engaged in this series over the last few weeks, the bottom line really comes down to this. What we believe is really true, we reveal in what we do. What we believe is really true, we reveal in what we Do. And this is, I think, our our great challenge also as followers of Christ to be able to put into practice what we say we believe. It's a challenge that's as old as time itself. And it's a challenge that I've I've probably never heard articulated better than than in the words of an elementary school child. Now, it just so happens that this elementary school child grew up in the house where I live, my wife Julie and I, and it was our daughter Emily when she was about in the third or fourth grade. We had an exchange one night that I will never, ever forget. I, I, Emily had done something wrong. I don't remember what it was. She had, she had crossed a line and out, you know, kind of overstepped the boundaries that Julie and I had established. And so as her father, I was helping her to understand the error of her ways, explaining to her what she had done wrong, why it was wrong, and saying she needed to apologize. In turn, Emily was helping me to understand that there were so many extenuating circumstances that I hadn't considered that caused her to break the rules of our household. And this conversation really kind of went on and on. I understood that Emily's personality and kind of how she's wired up, it's very important for her to feel heard and understood. And so I listened to her, I heard her out and out and out and out and out and finally, I just said, Emily, baby, listen, you just need to admit you were wrong and apologize. And I will never forget her words. Through the tears and the elementary school angst, she said, Dad, I know I'm wrong. I just can't convince myself. (laughs) Some of you are wondering, does he make this stuff up? I'm not that creative. This actually happened in our home. I know I'm wrong. I just can't convince myself. My guess is a lot of us in this room over the age of elementary school can identify with that statement. Isn't it true that a lot of times we know we're wrong and yet, man, we just go on ahead anyway? Or we we know what's right and we don't do the right thing. And, And this can be one of our great frustrations spiritually in a relationship with Christ, but I think we can also... We can also take a lot of encouragement from Scripture. You remember the fact that Paul, the Apostle Paul, evangelized by Jesus himself, church planter across Asia, author of two-thirds of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul had the exact same problem in his life. In the book of Romans, he said that the very thing I know I ought to do, I don't do. And the thing that I know I shouldn't do, that's the thing that I do. I had these two natures warring with inside, within myself. And I, I step back from that and I think, man, if, if Paul wrestled with that, then, man, I mean, I'm in some really good company. But here's the danger. The challenge is that we don't go, well, Paul did it, so I, I can do it too. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of how it's going to roll. No, 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 no. We have to understand that it matters that we put into practice what we know to be true. It, it matters that we fight that fight, that, that we step up and stand in the breach. And, and I think it's important for us to understand, as, as we wrap up this series, the, these there are basically three prevailing views on, on truth or, or ultimate reality, if you will. And it's interesting to me that all three of these prevailing views and perspectives are present at the arrest and the trial and the execution of Jesus Christ. If you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to go to John chapter number 18. In John chapter 18, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's betrayed by Judas, of course. The, the Jewish leaders and teachers of the law, the Pharisees, had, had contracted with Judas to, to betray Jesus. And he was initially taken to the to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas, or taken to his son-in-law's house, Annas, and then to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And from there, Jesus is transferred to the palace of Pilate. Now, Pilate, of course, was the Roman governor for this area, this region of the Roman Empire. And it was in his exchange with Pilate that there's this fascinating discussion of ultimate reality. John chapter 18 Jesus is confronted by Pilate and Pilate says, he asks Jesus now, they've brought you here because they say that you're a king who is, who is stirring up a rebellion against Rome. Are you a king is the question that Pilate asks him. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 37 of John chapter 18. Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. Verse 38, what is truth, Pilate asked. And then he went out again to the people and told them he is not guilty of any crime. Now, you and I live in a day and age that is, that's marked philosophically by postmodernism. Postmodernism basically kind of says that there's, there's really no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And, and that's kind of how we're going to exist in the world. And if our truths collide or, cl- or clash, then we're just going to kind of not really talk about it and order another, another cup of espresso and go to the Tony Robbins seminar. That, that's kind of the world that we live in right now. But this struggle is nothing new. You, you see this here, here with Pilate. 2,000 years ago, you can hear the sarcasm kind of dripping off of his question to Jesus when he said, what is truth? As if there's such a thing. And again, there are these three prevailing perspectives on truth. The world, as represented by Pilate, says that truth is flexible. It can come and go depending on our circumstances, or some people would say that it's subjective or that it's relative. Now, let me just help you, especially if you're in high school or maybe you're in college, it's important that you understand the reality of this statement. To say that there is no absolute truth, don't miss this. To say that there is no absolute truth is a statement of absolute truth. You see, it implodes on itself. It is philosophically, don't don't even worry about morally yet. Philosophically, relativism is bankrupt. It doesn't work. There's no absolute truth. Well, you just made a statement of absolute truth. So it doesn't, it doesn't work. So when you get to college and your professors or your teachers try to tell you there's no absolute truth, you can very respectfully and very confidently just kind of go, well, actually there is an absolute truth. For example, 2 plus 2 equals? Some of you all were unsure about that. 2 plus 2 equals? That's absolutely true. That will never change. It's a reality. Two plus two equals four. And some people will say, well, yeah, I mean, math, that's different, but but I'm talking about moral truth. Well, in God's economy, as the creator of everything, the author of all reality, God says that there actually is a moral and absolute truth. And he gets to decide. He gets to be the ultimate arbiter of truth. So... The world's perspective, truth is flexible. The second perspective is the perspective of entrenched religion. Religion says that truth is controlling. Religion tries to use truth as a billy club to keep people in line and moving on time. And this is it, my way or the highway, period. This is truth. And this perspective you see in the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were these scholars, these students of the law of Moses, they wrote more laws about the law. They they had laws about how far off the ground the tassels of their their gowns or cloaks could ride as they walked down the street. They were so legalistic that for them, truth became an all-controlling substance or subject. But they forgot that the truth was also relational And, and And it's into this breach between the world and religion that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ tells us that truth is personal, that truth is practical, and that ultimately truth is liberating. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, which by the way, that would include us, he said, you are truly my disciples if... You remain faithful to my teachings and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So you will know the truth. The truth is personal. It's, it's relational. In John chapter 14, Jesus said that he is the truth. So the truth is personal. You, you can have a relationship with the truth. It's not just about knowing facts or having insights or wisdom for living. That's a part of it. But ultimately, the truth is is personal. Number two, Jesus says, the truth is practical. You you put the truth to work in your life. You, You bring it out and you live it out through your life. If you hold to my teachings, if you are faithful to what I said to do, then you are truly my disciples. We do the truth. We live the truth. But then that last statement, that last statement that we said a couple of weeks ago, remember, is on the, it's on the main building at God's favorite university here in Austin, and it, and it says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth will set you free. The truth is liberating. When you, when you know the truth personally, when you practice the truth, then it sets you free, but it's only when we know it and we practice it that we're liberated by the truth. It is in the truth of Jesus Christ that we experience ultimate reality and ultimate freedom and liberation. Tell your neighbor right now, like you mean it, get yourself free. Okay, now I'm just going to say this real quickly. <clears throat> I, I, know, I know it was cold this morning when you got up, but you all were smart. You came to the second service. The first service, they got a little bit of extra credit for coming early, but y'all were smarter than they were, and you let it warm up a little bit. So now you need to act like you kind of got that extra caffeine and that extra sleep. Tell your neighbor like you mean it. Get yourself free. Get yourself free. <laughs> you see, we have to know the truth, but we also have to do the truth. We, we have to we have to live it out. See a lot of times we, we forget that what we believe has to actually be played out. We, it, the choices that we make, the actions that we take, those things really and truly matter. And, and and I think if we if we don't take that second step and actually do what we believe is actually true, then then what we're doing, is we are damaging the faith that we say we have. We're we're inoculating it, and it's making it ineffective. I didn't make that up. This is what the Bible says. Look in James chapter 2. Look in James chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. This is probably the heart and soul of everything that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Verse 19 says... You say that you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Faith without good deeds is useless. You see, just believing in God isn't enough. It's a great start, by the way, but it's not enough to just believe. The Bible says that even the demons in hell believe in God. Demons go, yeah, God's real. That's that's the one that we're opposed to. That's the one that we fight against. That's the reason we tempt people. We we believe in God. So it's not enough to just believe, to just know that the truth is there. We have to actually put it into practice. And in order to put it into practice, we've got to know what it is. I want to ask everybody, if you will, just real quickly, take out your programs. Take out the programs you got when you came in this morning. Open it up, and I'm going to just tell you right up front that this message is going to be radical for some of you. For some of us in this room, this message is going to radically redirect. It's going to alter the trajectory of your life because you're going to do what we're about to talk about. But then I'm also going to tell you this. For some of you in this room, this message is going to be a massive disappointment. Some of you are going to drive home and be like, that was it? I mean, I, I feel like I kind of knew that. Now let me explain. I want you to write down two things under message notes. Just write down under two, two things under message notes. Pray and read. Pray and And read. What I mean by that is that the only way we will ever know and live the truth of Jesus Christ is if we choose to pray and read the Bible. That's it. If you don't pray and read regularly, you will never know and live the Word of God. Now, what happens when we gather together on the weekend? This is a divinely orchestrated appointment that happens once a week. And there's something, there's something supernatural that happens when God's people gather together and worship and pray and confess and learn. But it has to be done in conjunction with what happens between God and us personally every day. So every day we set aside time to pray. Now, praying to God is more than, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> that, that's, that's great if you bless your meal and you teach your children to. That's, that's awesome. But truly praying to God is engaging relationally with the God who made us, who created us on purpose, for a purpose. It's to it's to be still and know that He is God and I am not. It's to it's to put my cell phone in another room to where you can't hear it. Bzz, bzz, and that little Pavlovian response check it. Listen. Unless you are tracking missiles from North Korea, you don't need your phone (laughs) 24-7. And if you are, God understands. You can still pray. But most of us are not. So when we say to pray, I'm just going to give you a formula. Now, a formula is not an end unto itself. A formula is a means to an end. Julie and I have a formula for 26 years of wedded bliss. We like to date each other. We we'd go out on dates, just the two of us. When our kids were at home, we would leave them with a babysitter and, you know, a chicken pot pie, and we'd head out on the town. we would just the two of us. It might have been Sonic. It might have been a nice meal. It could have been a movie. It could have been dessert somewhere. But we go out as a couple to reconnect. We don't talk about work. We don't talk, we might talk about the kids because we like them, but by and large, this was about us connecting in the same way. There's a formula for connecting with God. It's not the only one, but it's a great place to start if it's not a habit for you. P-R-A-Y. I want you to write the word pray down the left-hand side of that page. Just write the word pray, P-R-A-Y, down the side of that page. And we're going to make this a little interactive this morning, so P Give me a P. P. P is praise. We begin with praise. That means that we articulate to God. We tell God what we love about him. We tell God what we are overwhelmed about his character and his personality when we really and truly consider it. And we articulate that. We, we, and this is another thing. I would encourage you to, to get a journal. Write down your prayers. If you're a woman, you can have a diary. If you're a dude, it's a journal. But either way, write down your prayers and start by praising God. Julie will pull this on me every now and then. For for no reason whatsoever and completely unannounced, she'll say, hey, tell me three things about me that you love and and make sure it's not something else that you've already told me recently. You want to talk about pressure as a husband? And woe unto the husband who hesitates. You know what I'm saying? Remember Olaf in, in Frozen? You hesitated. Don't hesitate. But when I start to think about all of the things that I love about Julie, when I think about all of the things that we've been through, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the, the hurt, the the struggle, the challenge, the victories, the celebrations, the fun, the intimacy, all of those things, man, I kind of go, yeah. Can't believe, you know, I can't believe she keeps me around. I'm going I'm to make sure that I mind my P's and Q's so she continues to keep me around. It's a great reminder of how awesome she is. Well, when I worship God, it reminds me how great thou art. Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder. Sometimes my worship is I write out songs. I, I write out songs that we sing in here on the weekends, but I, I write out my praise And I communicate how awesome I think God is. And and there's something so powerful in worship. Because the fact of the matter is you and I were created to bring glory to God. That's why we're here ultimately. We're we're not here so that God can help us to have a happy life. That'll happen. But we're here ultimately to glorify God. Now when we glorify God, He brings us His good. So praise and worship, that's what we're created for. R. Give me an R. R. Repent. Repent. That means that we, we confess our sin by name and we turn from it. The word repent is a military term. It means an about face. We're marching in one direction, away from God, and God's Holy Spirit convicts us of a known or a living sin. And so we confess that sin, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we repent. We turn from it, and we walk Toward God, we begin living for God, worshiping Him again. But we repent and we name those sins one by one. You know, a lazy prayer, a lazy prayer is, "God, forgive me of all my sins." In Jesus' name, I'm. Ill. Oh, I feel better, don't you? See, that, that's cheap grace. That, that's too easy. The hard prayer is the one that David prayed. David, a man after God's own heart, when he said, "Lord." Search me and know me. Find any offensive way that is within me. Holy Spirit, remind me of any living sin for the purposes of confessing and flushing it out of my life so that your Holy Spirit can fill me. Repentance. And I would encourage you, I don't, I don't write down my, my sins in my journal. I don't know where those journals are going to end up when I'm dead and gone. So, but I confess them by name. Name your sin. Confess it. You'll be amazed at how much less likely you are to return to it once you've confessed it before God Almighty and asked for His power to give you the courage and the grace to repent. A, give me an A. A. Ask. Ask. This is, this is the fun part. Jesus taught His disciples to pray, and He said, Give us this day our daily bread. Ask God. For what you want. Now remember, you've already started with praise. You've already begun to properly align yourself and remind yourself he is God and I'm not. So your heart's moving in the right direction. You're you're already gravitating towards that true north that is your relationship with Christ. Man, if you want something, ask him. Ask him. Put Put it out there. Ask God to do what only God can do. How many of you are facing in the next, I don't know, seven to 14 days a, a meeting or a conversation that you're a little bit anxious about? Let me just see show hands. If you've got something coming up that you're a little, okay, again, keep your hands up. Not as many people raised their hands as earlier, but that's fascinating. Look around the room. Look at how many other people are facing the exact same thing. Do you see the power that God gives us with each other? to understand that we're not alone, we're not crazy. Whatever it is that you're anxious about, ask God. Ask God for his supernatural favor to go before you into that conversation. Ask God for the wisdom to handle that conversation in a way that honors him and blesses the other person. And watch the anxiety, watch the stress dissipate doesn't mean that the conversation will be easy, but it means that you'll enter it in a more godly posture. Just ask him. Just put it out there. And then why? Give me a why. Why? Before I tell you the why, I'm just going to tell you this is the hardest part, what we're about to talk about. Yield. Yield. To yield my heart to yield my life to the truth of Scripture, to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the leading and the prompting of God, to yield my life to God's will. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Bible says that he was praying in anticipation of the cross, knowing what was awaiting him. And he, he was so anxious and so overwhelmed that the Bible says he sweat blood, literally. But even in that moment, he set an example for us, and he he yielded. And he said, he said Father, not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus knew. He, he knew that what he believed to be really true, he would reveal and what He would do. And, and it's in that yielding, that yieldedness to the reality that, that God reveals to us. It's in that yieldedness that we have ultimate freedom and liberation. because he's good because he is the same god who chose to go to the cross on your behalf he chose to go to the cross on my behalf so if you ever wonder about god's motives if you ever question why would he do that don't ever forget the cross you see all roads lead to the cross and the cross gives meaning to all roads. I wonder this morning, if maybe you're here today and you've never, maybe you've never approached the cross before. Maybe this this concept of, of truth and reality has never settled in before for you Because you've never responded to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. You see, this is what it's all about. It's about knowing, it's about doing, and it's about being set free and liberated by Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that kind of freedom in Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to do exactly that. And I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, to not be moving or stirring for any reason. We've only got a few more minutes, but please don't be a distraction to what God's doing in this place and in this moment. It's too important. This is sacred ground. If you're here and you want to step into that relationship with God. To know the truth. To live the truth. To experience that kind of liberation. Then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. Just pray silently and talk to God. And just say, Jesus, I need you. I give you my life. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I know that you know it already, but I claim your forgiveness. And beginning right here, right now, I will follow you with everything that I've got. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And in your name, through your grace, I will follow you forever. And Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, just remain in a spirit of prayer for just a second. But for those of you who just prayed that prayer, we want to make sure that you understand this is the most significant moment of your life. It's the moment upon which God will build every other moment that follows. He will use and redeem every moment that has gone before. And so it's, it's really a big deal. And you're kind of in the perfect place for a moment like this because you're surrounded by people who want to help. That's our mission. That's our calling as a church. And so if you would, before you leave, I want to ask you just to help us fulfill that mission, to help us help and come alongside with you. Number one, if you would right now, just in that program that we were writing in just a moment ago, would you begin filling out the Connect card? Your name and contact information, that always stays in-house. About halfway down, you'll notice there's a place to indicate there, I committed my life to Christ this week. And once you've completed that card, you can just kind of fold it a couple of times. It's perforated and you can tear it off. And before you leave... We want to invite you. We want to ask you if you would just hand that card to one of our ushers or to the at the blue tent that today is in the lobby because it's so cold outside. But then second of all, if that was your prayer, would you just quietly lift your hand quietly but unmistakably. Raise your hand as we remain in a spirit of prayer for just a moment and as you lift your hand you stamp this moment in your life and in the life of this church because there is nothing more important to us than what God just did in your life and your response to it. And so we honor that and we celebrate it. And our family tradition around here is as you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, Welcome home. Welcome home.